This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On Media Watch this week, critics of a publication that's in almost every household in this country complain that it's out of date and should now be out of print as well. But the Yellow Pages, once a billion-dollar business, does have a plan for the digital future, one which might actually make the news media take notice. It's hyper-localised information. Not everyone has ultra-fast broadband. Or the web doesn't always work when it comes to searching for something or someone in your local community. We put some directory inquiries to the new boss about that. Also, Samoa's startling election result this week surprised many observers, but there was very little about it in national news outlets here. How come, and what does that show us? But first, reports about whispers of a move against the National Party leader preoccupied our political reporters this week. But after a full week of it, were any readers, listeners and viewers really any the wiser? Adding their failure to build houses, make inroads into child poverty, and no wonder they pray day and night for COVID to continue. Well, they don't actually, but what a distraction it's been, and it's worked for Ardern. Collins is a dead woman walking. That was Duncan Garner kicking off his AM show on three for the week by calling time on Judith Collins' hold on the National Party leadership. But dead leader walking has become a fairly familiar refrain for Judith Collins and her National Party predecessors, especially from Duncan Garner and his colleagues at NewsHub. He's lost the respect of the country and his MPs. Politically, Simon Bridges is a dead man walking. Political editor Tover O'Brien back in May last year, soon before Simon Bridges was actually rolled. But she'd been saying that the vultures were circling him and deploying other cliches of political death since the end of 2018. But how come this week Duncan Garner was now so certain that Judith Collins' end was nigh? Well, the former TV3 political reporter pointed to a recent Roy Morgan poll, which had party support at just 23%. Former leader Simon Bridges' coyness when asked about his leader. No, I'm saying it's, it's, it's all just chatter. Uh, as Judith said, it's all just uh, rumour and speculation. And I support Judith Collins at this time. And then there was this. Already former act leader Richard Preble has said, Collins should go as she can't win. That hurt. Richard Preble had declared Judith Collins a dead leader walking as well in the New Zealand Herald the previous week, and readers of regional papers like Hawke's Bay Today, Whanganui Chronicle and the Rotorua Daily Post read the same column as well. Yet Richard Preble's own political life expired a pretty long time ago. It's more than 15 years since he walked the corridors of power for two different political parties, neither of which, incidentally, was the National Party. Richard Preble's column even suggested that ACT could replace National in opposition, which is a pretty fringe idea, although Duncan Garner wasn't the only one taking that seriously this past week. Former ACT Party leader Richard Preble. Now, he's written a piece saying that National are in serious trouble and that they need to change their leader, and that if they don't change their leader, there is a small chance they may no longer be the largest opposition party. News Talk ZB also picked up on Richard Preble's reckons last weekend, but what was it all based on? Well, something that Richard Pribble had picked up, in fact, from NewsHub's Tova O'Brien back in late March. Both Collins and her deputy Shane Vetti wanted the party to oppose the government's decision to make Ashley Bloomfield responsible for fluoride in water, believing that centralisation to be overreach. But the MPs disagreed and voted them down in a caucus meeting. But that fluoride revolt in caucus was hotly denied by Judith Collins herself, and the Herald ended up printing a clarification the next day that the proposal had in fact come from Judith Collins' deputy, Dr Shane Retty, and not from her. But that made no difference to Duncan Garner on the AM show last Monday. The dump, the leader narrative has really taken hold. It was symbolic that her MPs didn't support her stance on fluoride, although she denies it even happened. 
Now, there were other dots the political pundits were joining too, such as the assumption that new MP Christopher Luxon really wants Judith Collins' job. Does he have what it takes was the headline on another opinion piece on RNZ's website last weekend, and the same piece then appeared on the Herald's website and News Hub's one as well. The author was the frequently seen and heard media pundit Dr Bryce Edwards, who's now a political analyst in residence at Victoria University of Wellington. But this piece was mostly media analysis, all sourced from what he called increased talk in the media. Exhibit A was a piece published the previous Thursday in the Herald headlined Is a Bridges Luxon Leadership Ticket on the Cards? And in this one, political reporter Claire Trevett's scenario resurrected a previous dead man walking, Simon Bridges. One option that is now being discussed in National is to reinstate Bridges as leader with Luxon as his deputy and finance spokesman. This plan is still in its infancy. But whose plan and who in National is actually discussing it? Claire Trevet didn't say, but she did say there was... An increasing acknowledgement among many National MPs, especially the more conservative MPs, that Luxon is seen as their best shot by the party supporters. But which MPs? Which supporters? Were they veterans or backbench MPs, party members or officials of senior standing and influence? Again, no clues. Presumably that's to protect the sources, as journalists are obliged to do if the source requires it. But there was nothing in that opinion piece to sway a sceptical reader into believing that this was real enough to really be a rolling in the making. However, that didn't stop talk radio over the weekend discussing the demise of Judith Collins at length even more. Francesca Rudkin on News Talk ZB's Sunday Cafe panel last Sunday kicked it off like this. Do you think it's just a coincidence that this week there have been several uh, reporters and commentators writing writing stories, you know, three of these in one week, or do you think that there might actually be something brewing behind the scenes? Now, all of those opinion pieces were clearly not coincidental, given that many of them referenced the claims of others, or were indeed even the basis of them. And in answer to that question, ZB reporter Francis Cook had some sympathy for politicians on the receiving end. And I know it's a reality of politics, but it's a little grim watching them become a dead man walking. There's that phrase again, and grim it is. But Francis Cook went on to lift the lid on why so many of these apparently flimsily sourced stories were appearing in the first place. Political journalists start to publish these for a reason. They're usually based on something, even if that something isn't concrete enough to publish an actual news article. It's still enough usually to publish an opinion piece. They're talking to politicians all the time. They know who in the party is getting itchy feet. They know if there are plans starting to be plotted out, even if they're not being carried out yet. So the fact that we now have several open headlines about who's next, That tells me the journalists in the Beehive are hearing pretty strong grumbles. So strong enough rumours then for dramatically headlined opinion pieces, but as we heard, not enough for real news. But Francis Cook went on to say that, in the right circumstances, these pieces can actually end up helping to create a legit story. The second thing is that also these pieces are a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once people are openly talking about your replacement, you are covered in the stench of failure. And that is just death in politics. There are lots of things that you can recover from. But being seen as a failure that's barely hanging in there, that is not something that in my time I've seen people recover from. Most people don't. It's usually at this point just a matter of time. Francis Cook called it the stench of failure and hinted that journalistic groupthink can create that for politicians. 
But later that day, on the same network, the Weekend Collective's Politics Hour had yet more on all this and more from Richard Preble. Question. So if you're a strategist then for either Bridges or Luxon, uh, do you wait until the next election is lost? You say they're not going to win the next election, so you wait until then and then you start afresh, or do you have the the confidence that somehow you can turn it around? If you're a real politician, you're prepared to take over as captain of the Titanic after you've hit the ice and you say to everybody, look, don't worry, we've just just paused to take on ice. The following morning, the supposedly under-pressure National Party leader fronted up to Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB, who asked her this. So is this media, Bridges and Luxon, is this purely media or is there something in it? I think what you see is that the... um the media starts one part of the week saying this is the combo, then the, by the end of the week they say, oh, no, it's probably not the combo. I just think it's silly. And, I look, we've got really important things to talk about. Uh, we've got vaccinations. We've got the fact that, uh, as you know, the horticultural area has been left mm. without any help from the government. And that's a good point. Citizens listening in would probably have wanted to hear more about those issues than an as-yet entirely hypothetical leadership challenge. But Mike Hosking's response took Judith Collins right back to that. I noted Peter Dunsett over the weekend. I thought it was surprising. He says he doesn't see the point of a leadership challenge or a change because he doesn't give you a chance in 2023. It's a long way off to write you off, isn't it? Well, I think I've been written off uh, many times in the last uh, 19 years. Peter Dunn, another long-time MP turned media pundit, did say that in yet another weekend talk radio interview all about Judith Collins' leadership. And News Hub put that on the web under the headline, I don't see the point, pundits dismiss National Party leadership talk. And that could well be the reaction of the viewing and listening public too at this point, after six days of media speculation and Judith Collins facing questions like this in the corridors of Parliament. How are you dealing with those whispers? Um, ignoring them because I know they're false. But wasn't it whispers that got Tom Muller into the job and therefore you? Uh, no, I think we'll, uh, we've moved way past that. But and what we're talking about now is the fact that New Zealanders expect us to be focused on things that matter to them. Yet with those supposedly job-deciding whispers reaching a crescendo, political reporters seemed remarkably no closer, even after six days, to revealing the actual source of them to the audience. And that's really the only important part of the story. But on the seventh day, last Wednesday, there were more pointless questions. Jenny Mae Clarkson seemed embarrassed on TVNZ's breakfast show and ended up asking a completely different question of Judith Collins. I do want to talk to you about the leadership, Miss Collins, and it's not a space I enjoy uh, going into, um, but I do think it's important to acknowledge, given the chatter and reporting around, about a possible leadership Uh, takeover involving Christopher Luxon and Simon Bridges. Are you comfortable with how you're leading the party? That same morning, RNZ's Corin Dan didn't want to spend long in that space either, half-heartedly dropping this question in at the very end of his morning report interview. Uh, Just very finally, um, there has been a bit of speculation this week coming out of the press gallery and elsewhere about your leadership. Are you comfortable with all the support you're being shown by your caucus? Yes, I am fully supported by the caucus. And after that, Judith Collins was asked about it all over again on the AM show by the same guy who called her dead woman walking just the day before. It is simply uh, a bit of mischief making. And uh, and you know that in the um, media, very good at that. You know, give Simon a break and Chris a break. But never mind giving Simon Bridges and Christopher Luxon a break. How about giving us a break? It may be true that MPs are plotting against Judith Collins, but until someone shows signs of putting up, it would be better for the media to shut down stories about the strategy and manoeuvres which fascinate political reporters and pundits so much 
Much more, in fact, than the rest of us. Last weekend here on Media Watch, Hayden Donnell spoke to Cam Wallace, the recently installed chief executive at broadcaster MediaWorks, who's had to fight several fires since taking over earlier this year. And one of the things they talked about was an independent investigation into the company's culture, following revelations of bullying and harassment that have dented the company's reputation and reportedly resulted in some staff being suspended, including senior staff at music station The Rock. Well, this week, MediaWorks staff were advised by email that The Rock's people have been cleared of misconduct, though that review, which is being carried out by QC Maria Dew, is ongoing. Now, Hayden looked at that in Midweek Media Watch this week on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, where he also talked about a bogus survey which said journalists are slower than most other people, which journalists were in fact not slow to share online with each other. If you missed Midweek Media Watch, you'll find that on our page at rnz.co.nz or the RNZ app, or it's available for you from our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. And another thing that Hayden looked at in Midweek Media Watch this week was how Samoa's startling election outcome last weekend seemed to take most of the media here by surprise. Hardly anything about the unexpectedly close contest was reported in mainstream outlets on the day, even though many thousands of Samoan-born people and their descendants live here in New Zealand, and Samoa is of course a significant South Pacific country in its own right. So what then explains the big blind spot in our media that was obvious last weekend? This week, Hayden asked one who also noticed it, Siota Afili Dr. Patrick Thompson, lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. Talofa Patrick, and welcome to Media Watch. Talofa Hayden, thank you for having me. So besides the obvious fact that it's a significant political event in one of our closest neighbouring countries, can you explain why this particular Samoan election is so newsworthy and historic? Since 1982, the Human Rights Protection Party have been in power, um, and the current Prime Minister has been Prime Minister since 1998. There's um, been almost four decades, I would say, of um, continuity in terms of the political leadership of Samoa. In about, say, I would say 12 to, to 18 months, um, a matter of months really, um, the current government has started to see its... Uh, its stranglehold, I guess, over power kind of unravel, which goes back to, I would say, the beginning of the measles epidemic. Um, there was a lot of discontent there in Samoa about the way that the government handled that. It's um, it's very monumental in the sense that we've had a political party come through so quickly um, within 12 months to kind of challenge the status quo in very many different ways. It's a dead heat, right? It's 25 all with an independent seat that's going to decide the election. So it couldn't almost be more of a cliffhanger. And despite that, you tweeted on Sunday that you didn't understand why the New Zealand media pretty much wasn't covering the election, especially in our two biggest website stuff in the New Zealand Herald. Yeah. I think about um, the conversation that we've been having recently about the lack of Pacific representation um, within our newsrooms. Um, But I would even go further to, to also ask ourselves as a country, whose knowledges and whose communities do we value more? And then we can start to think about why our journalists have chosen to specifically focus on Prince Philip's death, you know, and that was a momentous occasion, I guess, for a country like New Zealand as a former British colony. So if we only have predominantly Pākehā um, men in particular um, on our airwaves, then there will be things that will be emphasised from those particular perspectives. We're almost putting the cart before the horse here. We're saying, why isn't the media covering a Samoan election 
is it that we're asking them to do this, but maybe they're not even necessarily connected to Samoan and wider Pacifica communities back at home, just down the road from them? Absolutely. I grew up in South Auckland amongst the Samoan uh, community, which was very connected, and we had our own um, forms of, of media, I think 531PI, which is now the Pacific Media Network. Um, but, you know, the only people who are covering our communities are ourselves. Um, and so that begs that question around who do we value in this country? Why is it that our journalists don't feel comfortable or don't have connections um, to Pacific communities, right? There's a bigger question there. On the subject of commercial media, maybe they say, oh, well, these stories they're not being consumed by our audience as much as something about Prince Philip's death, maybe. There are 120,000 Samoan people in New- in Auckland, 200,000 in New Zealand. Is it just a signal that that market has almost disengaged from some of these mainstream media sources like the Herald or stuff? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think our communities have disengaged with a lot of these mainstream publications, even the commercial provide, well, especially the commercial you know, media sort of outlets specifically because um, the stories that they do report on usually are quite hyper-sensationalized and they're not exactly the most flattering stories. A lot of them, um, you know, will depict, you know, a lot of the problems within our community as a way in which they can engage their readership because they have specific readership and we're not that readership. And I think this also ties to the fact that our communities here in New Zealand uh, generally are marginalise and experience um, social and economic deprivation in a way which prevents them from, um, you know, being an audience that these commercial um, outlets would want to pitch to, right? You know, they can't make any money off us (laughs) in their point of view. But that's not necessarily true, is it? There there are organisations that do serve uh, Pacifica people. It's not an impossible market to target if if you actually have a connection to it. Yeah, absolutely. If you focus on one thing, you tend to miss others, right? And so um, these commercial outlets probably won't see the Pacific audience until someone demonstrates to them the value that they can provide for the outlet. But, you know, for a broadcaster like Radio New Zealand, which has a sort of a mandate that's kind kind of broader, it gives you the opportunity to think about this. A lot of the coverage that there was in organizations like Staff or The Herald or News Hub was actually published through a content sharing agreement with RNZ. So it was RNZ Pacific's content. Are you worried that these content sharing agreements that RNZ has set up with these media organisations means that they might just opt out of doing their own coverage of the Pacific? I think that's a really good point. It does encourage or at least gives the mechanism for um, these outlets to kind of put it in the too hard basket. You know, it's great that Radio New Zealand is willing to share its content, but then the Samoan election, you know, we, we're using this as an example, there, there's, of course, the surface level reporting you can do where you can just kind of report on what actually happened. But, um, you know, in terms of the different uh, impacts that this will have on the different facets of Samoan society, that sort of um, in-depth reporting kind of um, goes missing. And so having those share agreements in place um, really removes the incentive for these outlets to to, to seek out those really um, differing perspectives, that, that depth, um, the things that will help to sort of generate understanding amongst its readership for a community. So we've got to be careful that it doesn't allow 
media outlets, even if you're a commercial entity, I believe you still have a responsibility to the public in ways that other um, sort of enterprises don't. Um, it allows them to kind of vacate that social responsibility, I guess. Now, you pointed to TVNZ's Breakfast as an organisation that actually got this right. Why do you think it was so different there? I think it's because of the efforts of specifically John Campbell and his team. I don't know if people are aware of this, but um, he's really taken the time to come and and listen and speak to many different peoples within our community, myself included. I mean, he's also made space specifically um, advocated for the recruitment of Pacific presenters and staff members within the breakfast team. So his allyship is one that's backed by action, and which is why he's quite um, respected amongst um, Pacific communities. Although, um, you know, there are t- times that I've disagreed with some of the things that he's he's covered, but it's always come from a place of kind of understanding that our communities are, um, he comes from, he puts our communities on the same level as he is in terms of the way he engages with us. He doesn't assume anything about us, um, and he really tries to understand and listen. And I do know that he was instrumental in helping to shape positions, in particular for Pacific and Māori women within his team. So structurally, we talk about it being a bigger problem, but there are things that we can do as individuals if we are in positions of power. We've also lost some of our biggest Samoan language publications and uh, organisations in the last year. The Samoan Times was shut down in June after... COVID struck its advertising revenue, the Pacific Media Centre's going through a bunch of upheaval after the retirement of its leader, David Roby. How much of an impact do you think these things had on the lack of coverage of the Samoan election? When I was younger, there was actually a few more Samoan newspapers, but the majority of those newspapers were written in Samoan, um, which is important for the continuation of the language. But we do know that there are a lot of Samoan youngsters here in New Zealand who can't speak Samoan. So they wouldn't have been able to access a lot of those news, um, those newspaper articles and the type of political analysis, which is quite sophisticated, um, which are written in those newspapers, the things that we would like to probably see reflected in um, the newspapers that we have in this country. There are outlets locally, like in Samoa, we have the Samoa Observer, which has you know a bunch of talented local journalists. It might even just be developing those relationships with um, regional outlets as well, not just thinking internally around what we're missing here because our connection to the Pacific is also something that needs to be cultivated as well. If someone put you in charge of all coverage of the Pacific in New Zealand, what are the big changes that you would make, like the three biggest things you would do? What I would do is actually go and talk to our communities first and foremost. Um, you know, Pacific ways of doing things means that you go back to your communities and you find out what they want and what they need, and then you work together in um, you know deciding on what that action plan would be. Personally, I think um, you know I would the arm of Radio New Zealand, which looks at the Pacific in particular. I would resource that um, a lot more. Um, I would probably instigate. Um, some sort of internship program um, that targets specifically um, journalists who want to do work in the Pacific and have Pacific journalists, lecturers or experts be the ones who actually come in and help develop that to ensure that the types of reporting that takes place is in line with Pacific communities' ways of understanding and seeing themselves. Um, And a third thing that I would do would be um, to actually develop or work with specific training organizations uh, who train our journalists like communications degrees and 
um, to have a specific sort of uh, training module instigated or sort of implemented to help um, you know, provision that learning that you were talking about, not just for Pacific reporters, but also mainstream reporters, so they are more sensitized, I guess, to what it means to work and report in Pacific communities. That was Siota Fili, Dr. Patrick Thompson, lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell there about the coverage or lack of it of Samoa's election last weekend. Siota Fili, Dr. Patrick Thompson's own reflections on what he called Samoa's unprecedented election have been published today on the Māori and Pacific News website, Etangata. Most households in and around Auckland have been receiving a familiar publication in the post lately, the Yellow Pages, and not everyone's thrilled to get another copy of the distinctive book that's taken up space in almost every home in the country for decades. Comedian Ursula Carlson, for example, posted a picture of hers on Twitter and wrote this. Hello, 1995 just showed up at my house. Hashtag old school. And in the internet era, the Yellow Pages is the butt of a lot of gags like that. But it even gets some outright hostility from people who reckon it's just bulky junk mail, unsolicited and unwanted. Two years ago, the online news service Crux, which covers Queenstown and the Southern Lakes District, reported that many of its readers objected to the mass delivery of the Yellow Pages on the grounds of waste. It said that over 14,000 people in Auckland had opted out of Yellow Pages delivery in 2018, and Crux published the online link for its own readers to follow suit. And last week on TVNZ's Seven Sharp show, the host Jeremy Wells described the Yellow Pages as being dropped like telecommunications 1080 on the country. And one Aucklander who had opted out and was not at all mellow about getting the Yellow Pages turning up at his place again, turned up on Seven Sharp to say this. Look, uh, I don't want to see the end of Yellow as a business. I want to see them survive and thrive, but I don't want to see them doing it at the cost of the planet with all this pollution. And Jeff Neal's criticism came to the media's attention, ironically, via an online directory, the business networking platform LinkedIn. He claimed that many of the books end up in landfills every year and pleaded with major media organisations to take up the story. And on the Seven Sharp show, the self-employed business advisor then gave this advice. They need to get digital. And look, if they're sending out a couple of million of these per year at the moment, but if there's 100,000 Kiwis that still want these, great. Just send it to the 100,000. But in fact, the company is going digital, as we'll hear in a minute. On Newstalk ZB last week, Heather Duplessy-Ellen picked up the story. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll have received the yellow pages by now and immediately just thrown it into the bin, because who needs it? And after interviewing Jeff Neal about his campaign, she wound up with this. Yeah, brilliant stuff, Jeff. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Jeff has calculated, by, way, by the way, that this is creating about 709 tonnes of, in many cases, unwanted, unsolicited landfill waste. That is indeed what Jeff Neal calculated on LinkedIn and got the media's attention, along with his photoshopped images of bundles of yellow pages being bulldozed at a landfill. But the Yellow Pages company hit back on LinkedIn, accusing him of alternative facts and creating images. Back in the day, though, the company would have had no fear of a single small business advisor criticising its business model because the Yellow Pages, back in the day, was a very big business. Telecom sold it to a private equity company for $2.2 billion in 2007. But since then, the rise of free and easily found information online has meant steady declines in profits and scale. In fact, the Yellow Pages faced the same dilemma 
as our newspaper publishers, a legacy printed product that's well-known and valued but has suffered double-digit declines in revenue because of Google, Facebook and others almost every year. In the National Business Review in February, reporter Julie Isles said that while people have been forecasting the end of directory companies for 10 years, their demise has actually been quite slow and, like the news media, they made efforts to join what they couldn't beat. Stuff forerunner Fairfax, for example, bought Trade Me back in 2005, the biggest known such play in this market. And the New Zealand Herald's publisher NZME got into the directory game more recently in a joint venture with the online service Localist. But that's been in liquidation since September last year. The owners incidentally blamed the power of the Yellow Pages as a competitor for that. After many changes in ownership and management in recent years, Yellow Pages has now partnered with Google, the very business that gutted its own business model. And in 2018, it purchased a digital marketing agency, and all this is now happening under a new CEO with a reputation as an innovator, Tracy Taylor. Um, Well, first of all, Tracy, the Yellow Pages, I'm guessing that there can't be any other publication which is as widely distributed and available in people's homes. I mean, is is the Yellow Pages the single most widely available publication, uh, regular publication in the whole country? I mean, we distribute over 1.9 million copies across 18 regions. I'm not aware of anything else with that level of circulation. Um, The AA magazine, I think, is around 500k in readership, so that might be the closest. Our distribution is done solely by charity across New Zealand, so... About a million dollars goes back into charity with our distribution each year. Since I was a kid, it's had that essential disaster information and contact details in it. Is the Yellow Pages considered kind of an essential service by the government for this purpose? Yes, correct, we are. And Yellow's had a long-standing agreement with the government to provide the books to New Zealanders. It's about giving access to everyone equally. It's hyper-localised information, Information included within each directory is um, specific to that area and provides New Zealanders access to, as you said, emergency, medical, hospital, police, counselling service, addiction support, government departments, community cooperative services and other essential contact points. Not everyone has ultra-fast broadband. The web doesn't always work when it comes to searching for something or someone in your local community. But right now it's uh, the Auckland region distribution is going on and lately the media have picked up on claims that the Yellow Pages are past it, out of date and also bad for the environment. This is Jeff Neal who's featured on radio and television. But is he right that a, a large proportion of these go straight into the landfill? Yeah, I just want to be clear that that did start from a social media post on LinkedIn with some photoshopped images of yellow books in a landfill and then sort of a made-up statistics around waste. So naturally we didn't appreciate the fake news. So firstly, the books are 100% recyclable. They are made from waste product. No trees are cut down or harmed. From a small business perspective... There are over 7 million lookups every month. How do you know that, Tracy? Is that just audience research or...? That's independently audited by Nielsen. Looking back at the cuttings, uh, they all refer to this sale in 2007. Telecom used to own the business and sold it to a private equity company, according to the cuttings, for $2.2 billion. Media companies wouldn't have shifted for that sum. And at that point, 
I mean, the internet was a thing. People would have been using it to find information. Is, is that figure correct, 2.2 billion? Indeed, and isn't it extraordinary to think at the time, I think that was a very good deal done by those at the time, wasn't it? But Tracy, do you think um, Yellow Pages' situation uh, actually kind of echoes the newspaper business in a weird way? You know, you've got a very well-established title in print for a long time, widely recognised um, by uh, people out there in New Zealand, uh, but revenues you know, have been undercut by Google and Facebook just as they have for newspapers that rely on advertising and so on. And like news media, they find they actually have to work with you know, the likes of Google and Facebook digital platforms because that's how audiences are getting their info. Are you having to do the same thing now, not just the book? Yeah, I think you could compare our business to lots of other business. I mean, we're in digital transformation, absolutely. And actually Radio New Zealand is a great example of a media platform that's diversified. You know, podcasts and online content reflects the multiple ways that the audience wants to consume the news. Um, Just on the subject of partnerships, we really embraced working with Google, Google in particular. I sort of think our role as a business is to help our customers get the right mix of where to be. Every platform is not for every business. We offer a full service, so we are digital and print, and I think every good digital marketing agency also has a print option. If we think outside the cities, um, there is a very different landscape. Newspaper editors and publishers are always asked this question, how long will you carry on you know, printing the, uh, the hard copy of the paper and delivering it in ever smaller numbers? Are you able to give the same sort of commitment that you'll carry on printing a yellow pages I mean, we think the book still has an important role to play, and it was interesting last week. We had many people call our call centre to make sure that we were still going to send them the book. Um, I think until there's something that can do everything, the book still does have a future. And does that relationship with the government that you mentioned, does that underpin that? Are they committed to uh, supporting and uh, the disaster information and so on for another you know, five or ten years, some sort of contract like that? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, those conversations are always ongoing, but, and the government is very supportive. There's actually no time limit on it at this point. And you've just been installed as the chief executive to drive this. You've got a, a reputation as a business leader who embraces things like inclusiveness and flexible working and so on. Does it hurt a bit that, um, you know, we've had these criticisms in the media in recent days that, you know, your product, the printed books, are, um, you know, environmentally damaging and, and wasteful? So for us, we are really proud of our story. It is a good one. As I said, the, the books are really environmentally friendly. We've thought long and hard about that. We innovate around that all the time. The way that we deliver them is giving back to New Zealanders. So we're still really proud of our story. And just finally, uh, is it still effective and a good business ploy to um, call your business AAAAA Motors or um, you know Aaron's Friendly City Motel or something like that to get up to the top <laughs> of the listings? It's actually really interesting. There is still sort of um, friendly rivalry among a lot of our customers because, yes, that that is how the book works. But actually, if you've been advertising in the book for years, you sort of hold your place. So uh, I think um, the... Um, Auckland Plumbing Group, who came out on radio for us last week, which was wonderful, did say they're waiting for the plumber in front of them to drop off, actually, so that they can get a bit ahead. (laughs)
That's Tracy Taylor, Chief Executive of Yellow Holdings, the publisher of The Yellow Pages, the single biggest publication in New Zealand, currently being distributed around the Auckland region. And the deliveries in Marlborough begin this coming week, and then it's Otago's turn from the end of the month. And if you don't want The Yellow Pages delivered to your door, you can opt out. ypgbooks.co.nz forward slash opt out is the online link. Well, that's all we have for you this week. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, though, with Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.